Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Josh with just a quick message. Um, as I said, I think last week, for the duration of the WGA strike, we're not going to be having guests on who are promoting newly released material. Uh, with the exceptions of... Uh, folks we recorded before the strike, as is the case with this week's guests, or people we booked before the strike. So there's going to be a few coming up where people are talking about new things, but they were all done pre-strike. Uh, thank you, and enjoy the show. People are saying, uh, you guys should do something together. So it's sort of fascinating where our sensibilities would intersect. It all starts with a man named Billy Peltzer, who works at a local store, brings home a strange creature called a mogwai as a gift for his son. The mogwai, which he names Gizmo, comes with three important rules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, Billy accidentally breaks all three rules, causing Gizmo to multiply and spawn a group of destructive and chaotic gremlins. You ready? It's about to get interesting. As the gremlins wreak havoc on the city, Dirty Harry is called in to help contain the situation. I'm loving this. Armed with his trusty Magnum revolver and his no-nonsense attitude, he sets out to stop the gremlins and restore order to the city. That makes perfect sense. It's all Warner Brothers IP. <laughs> At first, Harry underestimates the gremlins, thinking they are just harmless pests. But as he encounters them firsthand, he realizes they are a serious threat and will stop at nothing to cause chaos and destruction. The movie would be a thrilling action horror comedy with plenty of over-the-top set pieces and memorable one-liners. It would showcase the best of both worlds, combining the gritty realism of Dirty Harry with the fantastical horror of gremlins. In the end, Dirty Harry manages to outsmart the gremlins and defeat them, but not before a few close calls and a lot of chaos. The movie would be a wild ride from start to finish, blending two iconic franchises into a unique and entertaining mashup. I'm in. Joe, you up for it? No, you wrote this or AI wrote it. I, I said... I said, describe the movie where Dirty Harry meets the gremlins. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you guys. I'm ready to lay my picket sign down and just, just right, movies. give up. <laughs> we got, it's too important. <laughs> Fuck the union. Let's write Dirty Harry meets the gremlins. I love your hesitance, Joe, that you were afraid to tell me how bad it was because you thought I had written it. <laughs> um, uh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I told it's you, all this AI it's stuff pretty, is not that bad. There's a lot of vamping there. It's a wild ride, crazy over the top action scene. Yeah, it's vamping, yeah. exactly. It's sort of exactly. bullshit. Well, let's while. get into it. Uh, Tom, Tom, thank you for joining us, man. I've uh, uh, I've known my Tom a couple of times um, uh, on the uh, Paramount line, as we say, um, and uh, thought he would make a, a grand guest on our show. Tom, do you want to tell the listeners? Like, just give us a, a three-minute breakdown of who you are, what you're writing on, when did you join the Guild? Well, thanks for having me. First of all, it's, it's a real honor to be here. Titus had a great time. So so when you, yes. you reached out, Josh, I was just like, this is this is a lot of fun. So it's it's I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, this is my first strike. I don't know if this is where we should start, but uh, well, uh, I, I got here in 2014. I started as a, as a, a, a writer's PA. 
on uh, the mothership, Bosch, and that we were in our first season at Amazon. Um, and I had the good fortune of, of not only getting that opportunity, um, but uh, getting onto a show that uh, got picked up every year. And each year they sort of invited me back and, and gave me a little bit more responsibility. And, and, and in some ways, I feel like we're, uh, we're out on the lines kind of fighting for the experience that I was, I, I, I was lucky enough to have that I didn't even know I, I was having it at the time in terms of how increasingly more anomalous this was becoming, this, this idea of a writer coming on and then getting apprenticed uh, on a show and being brought up and taught everything about production and, 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 and how to write uh, for a show on, under someone like an Eric Overmeyer, who, who, who ran uh, Bosch and now I, I, I run uh, Bosch Legacy with him. Uh, and he's a mentor in, in many ways. So I had this great experience. I, it wasn't by design. I mean, I obviously wanted to get into the industry and I had a former life as a lawyer and I've taught creative writing and I got an MFA in creative writing and I was interested in becoming a writer. I didn't know it was going to eventually lead to Los Angeles and, and writing for television. Uh, but when I got that opportunity, even to be a PA, I felt like, okay, I, I'm in the room. I, I, I'm, I'm in it's like close proximity to people who are doing this thing that I want to do. And I just had the great fortune of it being on Bosch and with people who wanted to give me a chance. So that's where I sort of, I was on that for seven seasons. Um, I uh, was in the writer's room for a show called Lincoln Lawyer when it was on, uh, it, it, it was almost a CBS show and COVID sort of upended all that and eventually landed at Netflix. But I, I didn't go back to the Netflix iteration because I got this other opportunity to uh, co-create and co-run uh, Legacy, which is uh, going into its third season. We were in the writer's room for about two months uh, before the strike hit. And so that brings us, I hope, in not too long-winded a way, uh, back to where we are today. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I should say, um, I met Tom on the line. I think it was the, uh, the first day, or at least my first day at Paramount. Um, yeah. and he was, he was, uh, marching with Titus and Michael Connolly, the, uh, basically the creator of Bosch. Um, and it was great to see those guys out there. It's, um, that, uh, uh, yeah. So it, it's so, great. It's, it's, it's been very supportive and has come out a few times and as has Michael, of course. And Michael said he didn't even realize that he'd been in the guild for over 30 years. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and he realized that the day he went to, to sign up for the first, first day of picketing at Paramount, he went, he pulled his card and they told him he'd been in for over 30 years. And, um, he feels really indebted to the guild for sort of supporting him and protecting him back when he was just getting started as a writer. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I didn't realize he'd been, he'd been, because I, I, I associate him primarily with novels. So he had done like what film or TV work before that. Yes. I did. I did not know that. Um, cool, man. Well, what, what, uh, yeah, one of the things we're doing is sort of like shining a light on, uh, folks and forcing them to, uh, tell us about like, uh, uh, preferably a movie, but we do grant that TV has its place in the world. Um, <laughs> Yes, it seems. I really get better with that solidarity with TV writers. They outnumber us about like what a hundred to one. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty it's, thick on the ground. It's, out it's, there. it's yeah. really all the same industry now. Let, yeah. That's that is true. By the way, um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine today, and we're, we're like, well, you know, most of the issues here are for like affecting TV people, not us. And then the more we talked, we we're like, yeah, and of course, not only is that not true, but I don't know anybody who does features anymore who doesn't also do TV. I mean, they're kind of yeah, they're becoming more. You and can't more, survive only on features. 
they're not enough of them. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 exactly. But um, yeah, what's what's a what's a film uh, you you would have filmed that, that sort of inspired you in a big way that you want to talk about a little bit, Tom? That you know, when you asked this question, I was going back and forth because my one of my early sort of responses was like, "Gee, I wonder if I should pick a, a show that has a lot that's oh, got a big impact." Uh, I mean, like, you'd be our first. But, but that would be. No, but I, I, I'm sort of a purist in the sense that uh, the, the title of this podcast is The Movies That Made Me. So I'm going to stick to uh, what is probably my favorite film, which is The Verdict, Sidney Lumet's uh, picture from 1982. Yeah. Uh, brilliant script uh, by David Mamet. And I, I think it might be uh, uh, Paul Newman's greatest performance as uh, the, the, the lead um uh, protagonist is alcoholic Frank Galvin. And this, this story is largely about his sort of journey from kind of ruin to redemption. And um, I, I've, I, there's something about the feel of that film. Uh, it has this melancholy, um, kind of gloomy uh, sort of palette. And the, the, the mood of it, it just, I don't know why, but it speaks to me every time I watch it and I'll throw it on at least once or twice a year. It's like putting on a favorite song. It just sort of gets under my skin in a certain way. And, um, I've studied that script. I think it's a, a just a beautiful, um, elegantly constructed script and, um, I can watch it. Yeah. Anytime you ask, you just put it on. And there's something about when he goes from that, that opening image to the last one, that, that, that path and that story path just really speaks to me. And I, and I love it. And it, it inspires me as a writer and as a storyteller. Yeah, no, I can, I can see the, um, it's a very popular uh, choice, by the way. Of, uh, yeah. It's 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 I don't know if it's the, it's, it's the Boston gloom or, or what it is, but it's, um, it's, it's come up recently, I, I would say, four or five times in the last month. Something like that. Oh, that's great. Not quite that, but, but yeah, quite, quite a few. But um, uh, yeah, and it's great. And it's, it's one of the things that Mamet, too, is it's, it's funny. It, it's, um, you know, people always focus on his dialogue. And obviously, it has great dialogue. It's not as mammoth and it's not directed, I think, the way you know, Mamet might direct it. So it, it flows a little more naturalistically. But... Um, he's such a great structuralist. It's exceptional. There is a, a, a spot that I like to highlight. It's it's really the first big turn when Frank Galvin uh, rejects the settlement offer and decides to take the case to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that scene is preceded by two others that I say, if you look at those three scenes, it's almost a movie unto itself. And that is, uh, if you just came in on it, you would understand you have enough dialogue to get the context. And that is he's on a late night conversation with the sister of the victim and you see on his legal pad, he's drinking, but you see in his legal pad, he circles a number and you get a sense that that's the, that's the settlement number he would settle for and to put, to take the money and to put this case to rest. And then the very next scene is a visit to the hospital um, to take uh, photos of, of the victim. Um, and as she's uh, hooked up to this machine that's breathing for her, it's this, uh, it's dialogue free and it's, uh, and it's Frank um, taking his Polaroid camera, getting a shot off and you see it play on Paul Newman's face that he's starting to see her as more than just this woman. He took, he came here to take pictures of, to amp up the settlement. And it, by the time he goes to take the third photo, he can't do it. 
and and there's this wonderful insert shot of the Polaroid um, developing, and you hear yes. the breathing machine in the background, and he sits down on this bed, and this this moment always moves when a nurse goes by and she says, "Sir, you can't be in here," and he says in this this voice, it's almost it almost breaks. He says, "I'm her attorney." And then <laughs> it's great. And then in the very next scene, he goes to the archbishop for the settlement conference and he's offered a check to take it and just to put it to rest. And he says, I can't take this because if I take this, I'll be lost because this woman has no one to fight for her. She has no family. She has no friends. She's hooked up to a machine. And what's so brilliant about the story is that he wants to give her a voice, but he identifies with her and he's trying to give voice to this part of himself that has gone to ruin, um, that is lost and is broken and is wounded and maybe forsaken. Uh, so in a sense, not to sound so overblown, but it's, it's a resurrective story, yeah. you know, in, in the end, when he gives that closing argument and he's had everything thrown at him. Uh, he's lost an expert witness. He's going up against this formidable attorney, these formidable institutions. He has every right to lose, uh, but he appeals to something inside him, to, to the jury that's inside himself. And it's about, can we still see the truth and can we testify to it and, and say yes to it? And, and can we, can we instantiate justice in some ways? And it's just, I'm sorry to go on and on about it, but we no, were talking no, about this wow, that's, that's the beautifully point. structured it is. Yeah. And that's that turning point about 20 to, to the 30 minute mark into the film where those three scenes and it's just, it's emotionally grounded. It's not just about plot. It's driven by character and it's deeply rooted in his, his sort of wounded, broken self. So it's, it's just beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it to death. And um, I've, I'm sure you must have, uh, have you read uh, Mamet's book on directing? Of course. Yeah. Which is, to me, it's book. so insane because I, I would argue it. Joe, have you read it? Yeah. I would argue it's not a great book on directing. Mostly <laughs> he's talking about how right. to figure out what a good scene is. It's an amazing yeah. book on screenwriting. That's right. It's this weird thing is you get into it. This might be the best screenwriting book I've ever read, but I'm not sure the guy who wrote it understands what directing and screenwriting are. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I recommend that book and Alexander McKendrick's book. Um, I think it's on oh, yeah. filmmaking. Should say for the record that Tom is wearing a Sweet Smell Success T-shirt too. So, yes, yeah, I didn't, I didn't plan to bring this up, but I'm glad we are bringing it up. But uh, the chapter in that book on um, on the rewrites of A Sweet Smell of Success, uh, working with Clifford Odets on on the rewrite of that, is worth the price. Sitting of sitting in the back it's of a something. truck in the in 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 New York City in the in, in the cold, you know, right, just writing this stuff <laughs> just before the amazing, shot yeah. Yeah, and, and Tony Curtis talks about the moment he he hears Clifford Odets pounding the the typewriter and and coming up with the the line, um, uh, cats in the bag and the bags in the river. And he said it went from his fingers to his his head and right out and <laughs> delivered it a few minutes later out on the street of New York. It was it's it's an extraordinary script. I love that movie, but that book, McKendrick's book, and Mammoths are the yeah. sort of the two that I've gone back to over the years because they're brilliant in terms of beat for beat, constructing scenes, um, yeah, and screenwriting. Yeah. yeah. And I, I book is great too, in sort of terms of, I think, thinking about filmmaking in a kind of very nuts and bolts, but brilliant way. But, um, yeah, man, I remember yeah. just sort of reading it cause I was like a big fan of his and 
And I thought, you know, just any, I'm, I'm interested. And by the time I was done, I'd like I had not expected to read a great screenwriting textbook. It's just, yeah, it will, it will confound yeah. me till the day I die that it's called on directing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's great about the Lumet book for, for a moment, uh, uh, what's great about that Lumet book is, is um, his process in terms of identifying in a story, like the premise and having that inform everything from the color yeah. palette to sound to how he's going to block his actors, how he's going to frame up um, uh, uh, um, scenes, and and when you watch the the verdict with that in mind, that sort of somber um, uh, feel is evoked mm-hmm. because he's thought through every single shot. There's not a wasted shot, and how he wants to light his his actors in this sort of Caravaggio style, having it come from the side. And he's thought through where he wants to put them in terms of locations. It's, it, it's, it, I mean, I, again, I'm coming back to the verdict, but when you watch the filmmaking and it's very understated, he's not yeah, drawing attention to it, Yep, yep. you know? And I think that what makes him a master is he's not sitting there saying, watch how I move the camera. Look what I can do. Let me show off in this. It's all in service yeah. to the story. Well, and he's, he's tinkering with your subconscious as opposed to yes. showing you. Yeah. Um, awesome, man. Well, what, what, um, so this is your first strike. Uh, yeah. how, how's it been so far? Are you, uh, you, you're ready for a long haul if need be, or are you feet tired? I think, <laughs> yeah, I think we have to. It's yeah. I've been checking my phone periodically through the day to see if I hit that 10,000 <laughs> step mark. It's just such an arbitrary number, but I'm like, okay, I've got my, my steps in for the day. I had 18,000 last Friday, which I was, I was proud of that. But, um, we, yeah, this is what the third week of the strike. Um, it's and it's strike time in the sense that it feels like it's been three months. I mean, obviously we'd rather be working, but I think uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I, I certainly for myself in terms of I'm ready for the long haul because I think that this is a, a, a very pivotal time in the industry uh, for writers and what we're trying to, what we're struggling with and what we're fighting for is worth it. Yeah, and as I was saying, I think for everybody. I mean, I think that's that's the thing. We're such a high-profile union, and I think um, you know there've been an unprecedented number of kind of labor actions the last few years in the country. But we are just by nature, I think, of you know the glamour aspect of what we do that, that we're getting a lot more press, and people are sort of watching this with a little more interest. And and these are issues that matter to everybody. And um, yeah, if we don't, and I, I think to some degree, a lot of people who even sort of casual observers understand that. Which is nice because last time out, there was already a lot of hostility coming our way, like just even three weeks in. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> so I've heard about that. I wasn't here for 2007, 2008, but I've heard that that's a marked difference. The support from our, our fellow unions has been uh, uh, different. Um, I think that the role of social media this time around and getting out there and framing our case has been very important. And I, and I think three weeks in, and let's hope this holds uh, we've sort of framed the narrative a certain way, and I think it's true. But we framed it in a way that has uh, that is broken through, and it's and, and people uh, it makes sense to people. You know, it's not just these writers out in Hollywood whining about uh, you know their their homes on the on the West Side and, and not making enough money. There's there's there really is something as existential about this fight, and the state of the industry is very different now for the vast majority of writers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Well, man, thank you so much for coming on. This this has been great. Uh, I very much enjoyed talking to you. Pleasure. 
Um, and as pleasure. you said, we Thank have you. talked a lot about that film, but uh, one of the things I love about doing this show is like we could probably just do a show where you pick one movie and have everybody talk about it, and it would be a different episode. And um, uh, yeah, you really, you really made me sort of think about that movie again the way I haven't in a while. Uh, but good. yeah, good stuff. All right, man. Well, we will see you out on the picket line. Thanks, Tom. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Josh. See you guys around. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're wondering how you can show solidarity with the WGA and the strike, uh, probably the most effective thing you can do is to make tax-deductible donations to the Entertainment Community Fund. It's not for us. Uh, we have a strike fund. It's to support our fellow workers in the business, crew who may be suffering hardship due to the strike. So go to entertainmentcommunity.org, choose film and television in the drop-down menu, and you can make your tax-deductible contribution there. And now, before we get into the main body of our show, uh, let's do a little word from our sponsor, because as you know, many of the movies we discuss on the show, they do, for instance, have the verdict, uh, are available at MoviesUnlimited.com, the expert on movies since 1978. You're going to find thousands of titles to choose from, although I think there's probably one or two in the section coming up that they're not going to have because you're not going to be able to find anywhere. But uh, unless, I don't know, maybe they've started carrying VHS. So buy your favorites at MoviesUnlimited.com. You're going to find classics, imports, hard-to-find films, and, of course, new releases, too. The prices are great, and the choices are endless. Own the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features you just don't get elsewhere. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50, unless you live in Australia. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. double guests before um, sort of coming up with, with sort of uh, something that binds them together has been a challenge, but you guys actually were like, let's talk about, you know, movies that inspired each of us on our journey to, uh, to the show. Um, so why don't we, yeah. I mean, should we toss a coin? Uh, do we go with uh, oldest, sexiest, who, want, who wants to start? I mean, all of that would be Joe for yeah. oldest and sexiest. <laughs> but, um, Definitely oldest. Yeah. yeah. I heard the words come out of my mouth and I went, yeah. oh, so we're doing jazz, yeah. so of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and and Brendan and I are we do pretty used well. to talking over each other. So that's we're the His Girl Friday of uh, showrunning duos. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, speaking of old, folks, that was a movie from – no. Uh, but, yeah, let's let's jump into it. Who should we um, – uh, Z, why don't you kick us off? Z's going to go. Let's look <laughs> – I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gremlins. This is an easy one. 
<laughs> yeah. I do like though that we got through most of our list as we were texting each other, like, oh, what are some of the movies that you think inspired Gremlins? It's like our our take on Gremlins. And then Z was finally like, hey, what if we do talk about Gremlins? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, yeah, but I think if anybody, you know, talking about it outside of uh, Joe himself, we've discussed it many times. Um, it'd be kind of interesting to hear your your yeah. thoughts on it. Like I mean, Gremlins certainly certainly was a big part of the pitch obviously um actually i was thinking about when i saw gremlins first and there's a there's actually a couple movies on my list that um when i was a kid when i was probably like 11 12 years old for spring break we never like i was raised by a single mom and we we never really had money to go on like spring break to like cancun or wherever kids go go skiing or whatever uh, so she would take us to the blockbuster video in town and we would rent like four or five movies a day. And looking back, yeah, I sure. mean, that was yeah. really incredible. We would just sit and we would watch like four or five movies a day. And um, Gremlins was one of those movies, as was Goonies. And watching it was mind-blowing. I mean, I just mm-hmm. had never seen anything in that tone before. Um, which Brendan and I certainly talked about. Yeah, because how do you, in the how do you it, it is such a specific tone. Um, and that must have been interesting to try to, and I feel like you guys did it justice. Um, but how, how, how hard was that? Well, one of the things we, I talked about in the original pitch with, um, Amblin and Warner brothers was, you know, Gremlins is so unique because it's funny and scary and weird and so idiosyncratic for a studio film. And what I, I thought was really interesting was looking at, Chinese mythology, which is obviously a big part of uh, the Gremlins animated prequel. Chinese mythology and Chinese spirits are actually also very idiosyncratic. They all have their own weird little personalities and rules. And, you know, rules obviously play a big part in the Gremlins mythology. And so even though I'd never seen an American movie uh, or a piece of American media that had that tone, there were certain things that kind of uh, felt familiar to me from, you know, the stories that my parents told me or from Chinese TV shows that are in that horror genre, there's always like a tinge of humor to it. So that was, that was definitely one of the things that I talked about when I was um, <laughs> really desperately trying to get this. Show. Right. Right. And um, uh, were you someone had seen like how many times, you know, did you see gremlins as a kid? Do you think? I mean, as a kid, I mean, the other thing is I had, you know, um, FCC don't find me now, but I mean, I had two VCRs. <laughs> and so anything yes. that we rented, I would try to record. Um, if there was no, if there was no little, uh, if there was no copyright protection and, you know, I had a big library of VHS tapes. I actually had, I was a big film nerd. I had not just the names of the movies, but also the aspect ratio uh, written on the VHS. They're all pain because, scan. <laughs> well, back in the day, the Bravo would, Actually, show it with the black oh, bars. Oh, so you record them out. Okay, all right. So oh, record them wow. off of Bravo. Yeah. But I mean, Gremlins. I'm sure I've watched you know twenty five, thirty yeah. times um, before we started the show, and then we watched it all. You the were time. like a three movies at SLP guy, or were you uh, uh, strictly one movie? That person? always drove me nuts when I went when I went one movie wow. when I went wow. home and I would find out that my family was taping movies and they would have seven movies on one tape and i said but you can't even tell the actors apart <laughs> and it, it didn't matter the fact that they had them was what was yeah. so important yeah. <laughs> yeah 
I remember, I remember I, I had to get a 160 minute tape to squeeze Lawrence of Arabia and Spartacus on the one video. <laughs> 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 and then never watched it because who would? It looks so funny. Yeah. If you wanted to watch both exactly of how they want it to perfect. be watched. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. Actually, I remember watching, um, uh, in terms of the, like videotapes, I remember watching, I think I've told Brendan this story before, watching uh, Gone with the Wind. On VHS, which was two tapes, but I watched the second one first oh, by mistake. And the first scene of the second tape is the carpetbagger walking up the stairs and Scarlett O'Hare <laughs> shooting him in the face. And I was like, this is the most amazing <laughs> opening to any movie I've ever seen. This is so far ahead of its time. Have you ever used that? That stuff's great. I remember watching, I mean, it was some Western, it was a pretty good Western, but I remember I was watching it just, just a few years ago and there's my sound system had blown out. But it opened with this gunfight with a bunch of guys in a, in a shack shooting. And the only thing that was working was my rear channel. And it gave it this amazing, I'm sitting there going, this is like, this is the arrival of a truly great filmmaker. <laughs> and you're like, oh no, my front speakers are blown out. <laughs> was it the proposition? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. There we go. Oh, yeah. That's nice. amazing. Wow. Um, wow. Which by the way. Great freaking movie. Great movie. Oh, absolutely. Watch it Great without movie. the front speaker. <laughs> I had that with uh, Johnny Toe's <laughs> Drug War, where um, due to a glitch on, I think it was Netflix or wherever I was streaming it, um, it had no audible dialogue for the first 20 minutes, probably actually for the whole movie, mm. but it took me 20 minutes to realize it was not a creative choice. And I'm <laughs> like, oh my God, they're just like not even mixing it in. They're just letting the action speak for itself. And then I like stopped as I like, got to like a clearly dialogue only scene. I'm like, let me look this up. Okay, no, this is clearly. <laughs> My God, I love that. Um, so, so Brandon, before we get into years, yeah. did you guys have to like duke it out or flip a coin as to who actually got Gremlins or? Uh, not Gremlins, because uh, as my first pick reveal, I took something in a similar fashion. But uh, Z did call dibs on at least one movie that I was all set to talk about. Uh, okay. Yeah, he think he texted it first, so he got full dibs. Um, and my uh, well, one, let's get into it, but first I have to ask you, because I can only barely make it out, is you have a replacement poster on your wall. I do. Is I, that, uh, is I that the amazing rock and roll band? It or is, is indeed. That yeah, that's from there. No, oh, thank God. God. Okay. Thank God. No, no. Uh, psychotic uh, Paul Westerberg replacements fan here. I have a Westerberg solo poster actually out of frame, but uh, yeah, no, absolutely love. Love, love, love. Can I, do you guys mind if we have, a, I have just an insane <laughs> tangent that will break your heart and Please. and make you hate, hate, hate them the way I do as much as I love them. Many, many years ago, uh, they, um, Tom Petty was on tour. Oh yeah. And you could either see him, in, you could either see him in Orange County or in Hollywood and in Orange County, the replacements were the opening act. And in Hollywood, I can't even remember. It was like, uh, some, some almost oldies, uh, Del Shannon or someone like that. Yeah. Perfectly fine. And I'm like, I'm driving to Orange County, man. I'm a huge sure. play sense fan. Find out when I get there. First of all, um, it was one of their legendary. They're so drunk they yeah. could barely play shows the last fifteen <laughs> minutes. And Orange County had a ten p.m. curfew, so the Petty oh. Show ended. And then I find out that the next night in Hollywood, he played till like one thirty in the morning. And then Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen jumped up on stage and jammed in the brass. <laughs> oh my god. I've always I've wanted to kill Paul Westerberg ever since then. Yeah, that seems fair. <laughs> no, that's totally fair. <laughs> I feel like and if I you found it. him now, he'd probably at least like give you twenty bucks for your ticket or whatever, or some gas <laughs> money for your pain. It would only be fair, but yeah, uh, enough of that. I apologize. <laughs> no. what's, what's your first film, sir? Uh, so yeah, building off of Z, my first film is Gremlins Two. 
Um, oh. Yeah, Gremlins 2, the new batch. Uh, yeah, I saw the first one slightly younger than I feel like I should have when I was like six or seven years old with my older cousin. So I saw the first one in the theater, totally stuck with me, scared me, nightmares, all the good stuff. Uh, although surprisingly, didn't shake my belief in Santa. I somehow compartmentalized that. <laughs> um, but well yeah, thank you. Uh, but yeah, Gremlins 2 um, even even hit me harder. Uh, I saw it, I remember going to see it a second time in its opening week because after that first time, I was just like, I felt like I had not yet seen every joke. Like I had to go back and absorb more and oh, for sure. further yeah. to absorb it, even got the novelization uh, afterwards, which um, I was thrilled to find had its own unique gag for the break in the middle of the movie uh, instead of the Jeez, film. What? Yeah. The brain gremlin takes over as the author uh, briefly. <laughs> Oh my god! Which is I fantastic. have no idea. There's a novelization. Of there Rose is a novelization. Too. It's pretty good. Too. Um, Imagine having to write that. It is. It's actually yeah. Because as somebody who that was my way around uh, R-rated movies, I wasn't allowed to see uh, growing up. I would get the novelizations. Uh, okay. So that was also a good way of. And sometimes the let me tell you the novelization of RoboCop not nothing special, but um, some of the other ones pretty solid. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, Gremlins too though. Uh, yeah, it was just. The humor in it, the live-action cartoon aspect, the there's like no wasted opportunity for a joke, uh, and that stuck with me forever since then. Where it is like you know every throwaway moment, whether it is like the the fake businesses, like the Canadian restaurant, um, that the fire announcement message uh, that's in there, everything is just more opportunity for humor, and just I love it. I just love how crammed full of jokes it is. Um, so it became like it's a north star of comedy for me on anything, but especially in this series, yeah. it it's really such was. A I, yeah. Joe, did I dream you saying this, or did you actually say this? It, 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 it it's a great thing to say either way. Um, if I'm making, well, this I'm up, bound to take credit like, for it now. I feel like <laughs> please do. I feel like you said something along the lines of like I wasn't sure they'd ever let me do anything again, so I wanted to get it all into this one. That's pretty much true. It's just every. <laughs> it's so amazing it is such an explosion of madness i love that film yeah. it's just so joyful and it's yeah again it's it's fun uh while still being creepy and all the things you'd wanted from the first movie but just now a little wilder and funnier um so yeah I, was, I feel like also it's got this quality that like anybody who's offended by it like anybody who goes in and goes that that's not that's not what i wanted out of gremlins like you are it's like they're self-identifying as a terrible humorless person <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, if you can't have fun with that, I question, but, um, but yeah. And that was, yeah. So on the show, it was always, um, obviously I think Z very early on brought up the very good analysis of the first film, which was like part of what always makes it work is the, the scares are genuinely scary. The laughs are genuinely funny and the heart really, you feel it. Um, so then in this one, it was like, I it was also then looking for within that, where are the cracks for the thing you don't expect? Because that's what I feel like Gremlins 2 did so well. It's just like, what is that little touch of, it feels like a gremlin made the movie in the best way with Gremlins 2. So like, yeah. how do you get that energy into the show also? Right. And if you guys, I mean, I miss, you know, would, would, yeah, have you thought about a second season? And well, oh, we, yeah. we not only thought yeah, about a second done. season, it's <laughs> already we done. Finish, uh, <laughs> we finished post in a month. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fine then yeah but um, we got thoughts uh, for seasons three four five and beyond because <laughs> uh where'd you who is it somebody joe is suggesting that uh, uh should be gremlins in the white house i've seen that online i actually i think know, that already happened know the board artist 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah <well. laughs> Daniel Clamp uh, himself. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Uh, awesome. Well, Z, what's 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 your next one? Let's see. Uh, I'll do Journey to the West. Actually, this one is a. Uh, it's based on a very old Chinese text. I will not presume to guess when it is, but thousands of years old. Let's just say it's really, really, really wicked old. Um, and. <laughs> It's just something that's been remade and made a bunch of times. And it was something that was real. It was so not to skip over the plot of Journey to the West. Journey to the West is about a monk who is trying to transport um, some sacred texts to uh, deep into China. And because he's a monk, he doesn't have like he, he can't really fight and he can't really battle, you know, the supernatural creatures and monsters that are trying to 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 kill him. And so he recruits. Uh, a bunch of um, mythological creatures, like the Monkey King. There's a guy with a big beard and like a, a rake. Uh, there is a pig-faced guy. Sorry, a and they go on this adventure. A rake. He has a rake as a weapon. Oh, he's got okay. And, <laughs> and all of their weapons have like magical properties. And it's uh, it was adapted by Stephen Chow, I think, in the early 2000s. Oh, wow. It's a great movie. Uh, the structure of it is very strange it's like very um picaresque it's got these like individual chapters and then they all kind of come together at the end to start their adventure and then there was also like a very many part tv show that i remember renting uh in when i was a little kid and you know we would always rent the videotapes and they'd be out of order and so it was like very confusing but there was a mix between like practical effects almost like shaw brothers practical effects and then also weird music, like weirdly like synthesizer. Like anytime someone punched somebody, it would be like, pew, like very, very like, you know, early eighties. And it was in my original, my very first meeting with Amblin and Warner brothers animation, talking about the structure of journey to the West, which at that point I like, I remember vaguely what it was about. And I mainly remembered the way that like my mom kind of summarized it to me, which was that, you know, there's a monk who can't do battle, and so he's got to uh, recruit these warriors, and he's going on this big adventure, and all the spirits and creatures want to eat him because um, he's very pure and innocent, and so his flesh is very tasty. By the way, terrifying thing to say. To <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of a structure for a show, you know, Gizmo in our show is trying to um, get back to his ancestral homeland He's Gizmo. He's adorable, cute, cuddly. He can't even like raise his hands above his head. <laughs> he can't be exposed to bright light. And so he's very vulnerable. And so surrounding him with his protectors as they went on this journey, that was kind of the structure for it. And um, it was something that I, we, we talked about a lot in the writer's room. Um, I assigned uh, the writers to read Journey to the West. None of them did. I certainly didn't. <laughs> but we all watched uh, the Stephen Chow. Yeah. Yes, we did. We did watch the Stephen Chow. <laughs> so that's number two. Yeah. Yeah. I was thrilled by something in the list because not only was it a movie I didn't know, it was followed by Perens that said movie and TV show. I'm like, I don't know either of those. So. <laughs> There's probably dozens. I mean, there's probably dozens yeah. upon dozens of adaptations. Yeah, the Chow one is pretty widely available these days. Um, yeah, I think it was probably on Netflix. Movies Unlimited. It was on Netflix. Yeah. It was on Netflix. Yeah. There you go. I think that's right. your spot. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah, no, fantastic. I'll, I'll check it out. I mean, I, 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 I like Stephen Chow. I just I didn't know this one. 
Um, cool, man. Well, great. Well, uh, and then Brendan, I'll ask you, did you know Journey to the West beforehand? Or? Um, only as a title. Like I knew basically the Monkey King aspect of it. Um, I feel like it yeah, might have been from reading Gene, Gene um, Yang's comic, uh, American Born Chinese. I feel like it had a lot about Monkey King and I feel like I may have even had reference to the text. So I knew of it, but had never seen any of the films or TV or any of that until now. It's right. It's not. Yeah. I mean, the Monkey Kings, uh, uh, when you were talking about it, there's obviously that character shows up a lot. There's, I feel like I have a weird DVD that I got somewhere of a Monkey King TV show, but that, that's Probably. not the same thing, right? It's uh, That might be the same yeah. thing. It, it's got a very strange pop, like poppy song as the, the opening, the opening song. And it's, um, I mean, there has been a lot. There have been a lot of monkey. There's a lot of monkey, lot of monkey King King's content yeah. Yeah. out there. Merch, yeah. IP. Um, yeah. Some of the best Chinese IP, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, Brendan, what's what's uh, what's next for you? Um, so I'm going to go with something else uh, from childhood. Uh, so I was going to say, I initially when we started making these lists, I'm like, oh, I feel like we referenced a lot of horror comedies. So I thought I was going to go down that road. And I realized, no, what actually influenced the series was, I think we almost kind of ended up calling the childhood trauma movies. It was the stuff largely coming out of the 80s, where if we saw it as a kid, it stuck with us and kind of like messed us up a little bit or scared us or uh, I don't know, stuff of that nature. So I'm going to go with another one in that range. I saw probably around the same time I saw Gremlins or a little later, Time Bandits. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which absolutely loved. And uh, the ending of that one, especially uh, very dark, definitely uh, made me hug my parents a little bit more after watching it. Um, <laughs> but uh, for us and for one of the things that has really stayed with me uh, from it is it's a pretty good dark tale about how adults never listen to kids to their detriment. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as yeah, as a parent, I maybe yeah, I'm not sure about now, but as it was that kind of kid point of view and never talking down to kids, actually genuinely respecting that they know more than is they people give them credit for uh, wanting to bring that kind of point of view and feeling to our show. Um, and then also, yeah, I mean, our parents in our show are far, far healthier dynamic and relationship than the ones in time bandits. But yeah, just that it's like kids and parents don't always need to be on the same page, even if they love each other. Uh, it's just kind of yeah. that kind of slightly more complex relationship. Um, and then it's also, yeah, just, I love time. It's just, it's hilarious. Like their take on Robin hood is so funny. Just the throwaway lines are so funny. Um, and the one other thing that really influenced us was David Warner's evil. Um, Mm -hmm. I think at least in my head became when we were writing, um, a voice I always kind of kept a little bit in my head for us writing Riley green, uh, our season's big bad who's voiced by uh, Matthew Reese. Cause there's always, I feel like David Warner's performance walks the line very nicely of, never getting too arch because he's also kind of almost too needy and petty to fully ever be arch. And that was kind of something I always kept in mind for us, uh, for our own villain. How does that, I'm always interested in stuff like this. Did you, did you uh, show, sorry, Matthew Reese? Yeah. Did you yeah. tell him this or did, did, uh, no, didn't have to. Um, it was something I always kept a little bit in a back pocket kind of in my mind to like share with our voice director or to share with him. But man, he just came in with uh, a very using his actual Welsh accent and like just kind of his own take that totally lined up with our thought on it. And it's just such a uh, I'm trying to think like kind of petty, ego driven villain um, that just totally matched everything we had been thinking of. And again, he just he nailed it. Never really had to. That's fantastic. 
Um, see, what's what's your next one? I guess I should just uh, keeping in that same time, same ish time period. Um, Goonies. Um, that is one of the movies that uh, Brendan and I would certainly reference a lot when we were talking to Amblin and Warner Brothers and HBO Max. And it kind of falls in the category of um, also like time bats. You know, it's, it's a child protagonist, but at the same time, they are living in an adult world with adult stakes, adult life or death stakes. And um, especially as we were first formulating the visual look of the animated series, we wanted to make sure that it was going to be really cinematic and it was really important to us that we were able to use uh, the camera and move it cinematically like Joe does in Gremlins and in Goonies and in you know, other Amblin movies like um, um, like uh, the Indiana Jones movies. I mean, something like the opening of Goonies where you're meeting all the characters is told very visually. I mean, how much the, the music really carries that opening also it's something we talked about a lot in the room and you know, our main characters in Gremlin's secrets of the Mogwai are young. They're 10 and 12. And then one of them is, and then, and then there's also Gizmo, but living in that kind of life or stakes world that children are kind of um, trapped in this adventure. Um, but you're really telling things from a, a kid's point of view. I, I, I thought the Goonies, you know, is one of my favorite um, renditions of that. So you guys are under 40. Nope. No, really? Just on, on the other side. side. It just, maybe it's changed. I'm turning 39 for the third time. <laughs> I'm 45 now. A friend of mine has a theory, and so far I have uh, 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 – maybe it's 45 now, I guess. We're all getting yeah. older. It, but it's just like 45. if you're under 45, <laughs> if you're under whatever that line is, you love Goonies. And if you're over 45, uh, which I hate to say I am, you're like, sorry, what? It's Joe. Do you want? Are you uh, you with me on this? Or are you? Well, no. I'm just. I'm the guy who's always getting congratulated for making Goonies. So I, you know, I, I'm <laughs> <laughs> always, always have a rather love hate relationship with it. That's fair. I have to have a few uh, Corey Feldman stories at the ready. Oh, yeah. To, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do, It's like that one in Spaceballs. You guys, Spaceballs fan? Yeah. Or as or as Mel calls it, Spezbars. <laughs> <laughs> It's wild. I don't get it. It's definitely, it's a generational thing. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't judge you. In fact, I envy you. I wish I, uh, it's every, yeah, it happens. I made my kids watch it. You know, I made my kids watch Goonies and they loved it. Yeah, I, okay. I did have to tell them that I, I played data. <laughs> and... Nice. I like it. Nice. Uh, so well, Brendan, what, uh, <laughs> Wait, can you come up with one that I can tell you I hate too? Or uh, that- I'll try. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm gonna actually I'm gonna stick with the adults should listen to kids uh, subgenre on my list and go with Spirited Away. Oh, yes. Which, um, yeah, obviously saw that later. So post college in my twenties uh, when it came out, and yeah, I mean, if there is, I guess, kind of what anybody who's doing a kid driven fantasy world, fantasy creature, anything in that animated realm you're pretty much going to strive to be at least one-tenth as magical as Spirited Away. Um, so we couldn't help but want to uh, reference it, even and not just in the tone, but also in the look of it. Like, it's just one of the most unique and inspiring, um, yeah, fantasy realms you've ever seen. Like, God, those shadow creatures just stayed with me 
for days of just kind of imagining them moving through any world. Um, but yeah, it's another one that really respects the kids' emotions and point of view. Uh, and the thing I especially love in that, it never feels like it has to reassure the kid. I find that through a lot of Miyazaki's work, like it, it's horrible news delivered totally deadpan. Uh, and that also <laughs> something I think that we kept also is that nobody ever wastes time being like, oh, well, that magical thing can't be real. Like in my favorite in every Miyazaki movie is there's always a point where it's like the protagonist reacts to seeing something for the first time. And there's a character being like, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I also think, Brendan, I think horrible news delivered deadpan should be the name of your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, Thank you. Thank well, you. What's your what's your podcast? Up. I'll cut yeah. this because we're not going to plug a we're not going to plug competition. But what, yeah. what's your podcast? Oh no! Deadpan though is my jam. Um, I also yeah. want to say the other thing. Uh, I was, yeah, Joe, Joe and I were going to have to crush you if that was the case. Oh, fair. I get it. Um, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say for Spirited Away, Z in the writers' room, uh, you're you shared your son's reaction to watching Spirited Away, which uh, has kept me from showing it mm-hmm. to my kids because that was just one of my favorite reactions I heard. What was it? Yeah, uh, it was actually both my son and my daughter were watching it. And um, oh, how old? They were probably seven and five. And I was yep. like, oh, they're really like engaged. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch and watching this, sitting closer to the screen. And it's the the big mm-hmm. head lady. I don't know how else to describe her. Is on screen like, oh, this is so interesting. I'm like, Hey, kids, what do you think? And they both turn to look back at me, and both of them have hot <laughs> tears streaming down their face because they're so horrified and scared. So they didn't finish the movie. Oh, no. But they were yeah. engaged. I think but that's we, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, in fact, we just had, we just had a guest on whose, whose parents were taking, were taking him to uh, inappropriate movies even earlier than mine were. But, um, yeah, I think kids are all right with that. I remember, you know, taking my little brother to see uh, Wizard of Oz when he was apparently too young because the flying monkeys just scared him so much he ran out of the theater. But doesn't seem to have traumatized him. And and I really like what you said about sort of bad news and everything. It's like I just feel like kids, on some of them know when you're talking down to them, you know. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, no, I love that. Uh, I just I, you you can tell immediately when you're in the hands of somebody who actually understands kids, um, or is just patronizing them which again yeah time bandits uh is, is so good at and, and we definitely talked a lot in the writer's room and and um with the artists about you know spirited away and wanting to make sure that the show had like a, a painterly quality to it and we're really mm-hmm. proud of the way that the you know, the backgrounds feel very organic and painted and even um the textures on our characters that are cg so that we can move the camera in a certain way um have a kind of organic feel to them and um spirited away was uh, a reference that we kept on coming back to yeah because uh, your show looks wonderful i mean yeah the color just the colors are just they made me very happy um <laughs> z what's your what's your next one um my next one is when we do when do we do ashes of time um this is a weird one Ashes of Time is a movie uh, directed by Wong Kar Wai, who did, you know, In the Mood for Love, Chunking Express. It is a sword and sandals wuxia movie. So it's got kung fu, takes place in some unnamed medieval time. It's based on a very old um, uh, novel about kind of like kung fu masters. And it's this really gorgeous movie. It's a Wong Kar Wai movie, but it's, you know, it's an action movie. It was one at the time. I think it was one of the most expensive movies Hong Kong had ever produced. Had an all-star cast. 
it took so long to make the movie that most of the cast went off and shot a spoof of the movie while they were shooting that was released, I believe, before Ashes of Time was. And Wong Kar Wai also, in the middle of Ashes of Time, went off and directed Chunking Express over like three, four weeks. And so it, it's, a, it's a really interesting case study in like, it's basically his apocalypse now. And what's cool about it is usually when you watch um, Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, like everyone is just, there's certain archetypes that you see, you know, the hero, the bad guy, the best friend, you know, you know, usually like the parents and the parents also know Kung Fu. But in this one, the characters, it's, it's almost like an existential character study. And each one of the characters is dealing with some very specific idiosyncratic thing that makes them tick. And they, there's very little dialogue in the movie. It's very like sensuously filmed and there's supernatural elements to it, which I thought were really interesting. And there's one in particular that I won't spoil, but we, we almost, it, it draws from a Chinese, um, uh, supernatural, uh, supernatural element. And, and we kind of stole it a little bit from one of the episodes. Yeah. We only stole from the best. It's it's a flattering choice. (laughs) <laughs> is, is it recognizably stolen or did you uh yeah it's like it, it, we swapped out like one word <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny it was you know i watched it on laserdisc i know that we talk you guys talk a lot about physical media on the show which i really appreciate but i watched it on laserdisc and you know i, I it, it had been many years since i'd seen it and they came up with a Ashes of Time Redux where they recolor corrected it. They re-released it. So like the editing is different. And it was only upon re-watching it more recently that I was like, oh, we definitely use that in Gremlin's Secrets of the Mogwai. <laughs> so I just thought I should retroactively give thanks to Orca Y for doing that. That's great. I love that. Yeah, I've had that happen where like I'm going back to some old movie that I know I love that I haven't seen in like 30 years. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> I just yeah. robbed this blind <laughs> yeah. and for either forgot it's, or wasn't yeah, conscious no. of at the time or something. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I choose to think of it as a compliment because I realized before this, I started rewatching some of the movies on my list before recording this, just to kind of make sure I still feel this sure. way and can remember them. And yeah, I realized that I stole uh, at least a phrasing from time bandits in another TV series I did. Wow. So I was like, oh, that's where that got stuck in my head, that uh, that kind of comeback, that kind of line. Okay. That's um, thankfully, in Gremlins, my main thievery is all from Joe. Yeah, so, so what's, what's he going to do? I feel better about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I got to ask, uh, Z, and also, Brendan, were you Laserdisc guy too? or? Uh... Yeah. Well, I, we, yeah. well, you were. I was my, my aunt, my aunt yeah. bought a Laserdisc player or maybe it was my uncle bought a laser disc player and gave it to us as a gift but they had bought it from i think like a police auction and so when the laser <laughs> disc started playing it would sound like a helicopter taking off like i watched i watched the apocalypse <laughs> now and the opening scene it really sounded like the helicopters were in in the room with you but it was the uh oh, man. the laser disc Flopping around inside of that thing. little puffs of cocaine coming out of the uh, police, <laughs> police grabbed, uh, and then we're okay. So yeah, because that seems like that seems like kind of a, a shitty gift to give someone who's not 
as you say, your spring break was spent renting movies. Like there was never a period where Laserdisc got cheap. They were like, even when they died, they were like fifty or sixty dollars a pop. But randomly, Asian uh, Asian video rental stores would have a Laserdisc sure. section because of karaoke, because it was oh, like okay. the, the it was the technology where you mm-hmm. could remove the vocal track and right. and do karaoke on Laserdisc. Always like terrible, terrible B roll of like glamorous people, <laughs> like walking yeah. around Hong Kong. Sorry, we Brenda. I, I, Brenda, yeah. Brenda, were you also laserdisc? Did you do laserdiscs? No, so I just had laserdisc envy. That was my whole thing. Was um, there was a store I could walk to near where I grew up called Laserland that sold just laserdiscs and CDs. I had I had neither. I had VHS and tape cassette, but I would still walk to the store regularly and just flip through, just kind of being envious of like. Someday I want to be able to see all these. But yeah. By the time I... Uh, so they, they would have all rotted by now anyway, so... <laughs> there you go. I, I still... I think I still have... I still have, I have two autographed ones. Because, like, what are you going to do with your autographed laser discs? I can't get rid of those, you know, but... Frame them? I, I guess, yeah. 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 And then... Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't have this, Joe. Have we talked about Disco Vision? Because somebody gave me a Disco Vision thing, which is the same size as laser discs. <laughs> yeah, my friend... My friend John Hora, who shot both uh, of the uh, Gremlins movies, was a huge Disco Vision fan. He had Disco Vision, he had Disco Vision uh, discs all over his house. Uh, he had Studebakers in his backyard. He, he was a very interesting <laughs> guy, uh, but he was the only guy who was totally he was totally into Disco Vision. He's the only person I ever met who was into Disco Vision, which frankly I, I, was a little blurrier than the than, than Laserdiscs. I thought. At least on his side. They're like discs contained in a, they were round. I think they were the exact same size as laser discs, but they were contained in these like plastic cartridges. You'd slide the cartridge into the machine or something. I don't know. They're very, but uh, yeah, I don't think they lasted very long either. But yeah, what, what do you, uh, Z, do you have any laser discs left or are you? Uh... I think, I think I have a really weird collection. I think I've got like Romeo and Juliet. The Godfather Part Two. Sure. I think I have Chunking Express, and I have this Japanese movie, The Eel. And I, I'm, I feel like I might only have like four or five laser discs, but and they were yeah, so I, ultimately they were so. I just remember like getting, saving up to buy like the Criterion came out with Doctor Strangelove. It was hundred and fifty dollars, and and. You know, it was CAV, which meant it was like what three discs, and you have to flip it like six times. So you're you're getting like twenty <laughs> minutes of the movie, and then having to stop to go. Shh, shh, shh. You're like, wow, this is so much better than VHS. <laughs> Dude, we, I will say, I had a teacher. Active? I had a teacher who had a laserdisc collection, so a lot of my bootleg VHS tapes were off of Criterion yeah. laser right. discs were, were great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember when Straw Dogs came out, Straw Dogs had been out of print for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So I saw Train Spotting. Saw a lot of I saw a lot of movies on on laserdisc. Yeah, well, it was uh, inter- but there was something we didn't we weren't quite prepped. You know, now you know about kind of intermedia. Like now you look at it and go, yeah, I'm going to wait. But back then it was just <laughs> yeah. such an evolutionary <laughs> leap. It was like, oh my god. Had to do it. Uh, yeah, sorry you for the diversion. the disc six times while you're <laughs> watching a movie. It's incredible. It's the future. That's good. You have a workout in while watching a movie. For an extra three hundred dollars, you can get a player that'll flip it once for you. And uh, <laughs> uh, Brendan, 
Um, Betamax? Right, next up, you want to talk uh, about your Betamax collection? Yes. Going to stick with uh, the the beautiful format of VHS. Um, so I worked at a comic book store in high school, uh, still around on Long Island, uh, Grasshoppers Comics. And at the time, they had a great uh, rental section, mostly anime, but also is where, while I was working, is where I discovered Hong Kong movies and kind of like a lot of actually international stuff because that was just where it actually came in. Um, and one of the first ones I borrowed while I was working there was The Heroic Trio. And that movie just kind of floored me when I first saw it because going back to movies that are just like, not just tones that you're not used to seeing in one movie, but also for this one, it was like gore levels and things that should be relatively safe, like, you're not going to mass murder children if you're a hero kind of thing. <laughs> uh, it just had like stuff like that just started happening. And just like it. Yeah. I, I had that. It's that great experience that a lot of movies I love where it's like, I have no idea what's coming next. And I love that. Mm. It's just totally surprising me as it keeps going. Um, so yeah, uh, it's that level. I mean, it's hard to replicate that level of surprise, but that was going back to give to our show something that stayed in my brain as like, oh, um, yeah, just how do we keep that level of surprise in anything we do? And the other thing is also the visuals in that, because they have, they managed to do Supernatural on top of, uh, you know, then in I think early 90s, uh, Hong Kong, right on top of each other. It's like these two things somehow can exist side by side without being visually jarring. And that was something I feel like to us to kind of carry over. And even also some of their color palette also, I feel like, um, maybe on a subconscious level, just feel like it see, re rewatching the heroic trio. Cause it's now on criterion. I hadn't seen it. Oh, since, the channel. Uh, mm -hmm. like before. Yeah, yeah. It's on criterion streaming right now, which is a nice surprise. Um, but yeah, rewatching that, I had a little bit of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Some of our stuff, I can kind of see some similarities there, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Again, it's the specific thing without going too into it. Um, yeah, it's just, I remember being willing to go totally, heartfelt like letting just like genuine emotion play in a scene where at the same time michelle yo is being like very uh violently physically controlled by a bleeding skeleton like it has wrapped itself around her body but we're also having like the big heartfelt climax of the movie at the same time and it's like that's uh yeah what we aspire what yeah. i aspire to in this show yeah show. that that seems to and I, I think i think it's it's the the influence of those films because um you know, I'll go back when I was first out here in, in LA in the like late 80s and 90s, there were a few video stores you would drive to. I live in the South, but you drive downtown to rent like Hong Kong movies. You know, and they, we've talked about these before mm -hmm. the show with the, you know, every, every flat part of the uh, screen was covered with different language subtitles. You can barely see what was going on. <laughs> and, you know, and now here we are with like Michelle Yeoh has her Oscar all these years later. But I think along the way, We've gotten so much more. I mean, we, you, you love this stuff. Obviously, both of you guys love this stuff. And I hope Joe does. I always did. But it seems like mainstream audiences have finally gotten, uh, I think I, studios have gotten okay making this stuff. I think audiences were always fine with it. Big tonal shifts. Because those kind of tonal shifts that you're talking about were just not in movies over here for the longest time. And now it's like, I think they've realized, like, oh, yeah, people will go along with this which is great, but that's clearly an influence yeah, of it's about time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I, I always maintained even back then, this is going to floor you guys. Um, I'm a little older than you. So, um, Joe can confirm <laughs> life is full of tonal shifts. What thing that happens. It's a thing that happens. 
by 45. This yeah. that's, but that's why we go to the movies, is to avoid that. The last thing <laughs> yeah. we want to do is have total shifts uh, well, in our paid entertainment. Good point. Damn it. Um, all right. Well, see, what's what's your uh, – oh, my God. What's your last one? Well, my final one, yeah. Um, it's uh, Kung Fu Hustle by Stephen Chow. Oh, fantastic. And it's something that Brendan and I talked uh, about a lot in the writer's room. and yeah. Which is great. It, it to me is the closest thing to like a Chinese Kung Fu animated movie. It's got uh, mm-hmm. even some of like the animated sound effects when people are fighting, mm-hmm. but just the, the, the length of imagination and, and the, the choreography of not just the fights, but also the choreography of the visual gags and the way that people like even like enter and leave frame and has this incredible uh, ensemble of really idiosyncratic characters that are both, you know, like interesting from a character perspective, but also just visually, if you lined up just their silhouettes, you know, you would, you would immediately know who all of them are. And it was something that it was one of the movies besides gremlins and gremlins Two that we showed to the entire crew, you know, in the middle of the day, just thinking like, okay, this is worth the two hours of just going through this and talking through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 This was the one that, uh, if Z had not called dibs on, I was You're going to do as that. well. It's yeah. Cause it is just, yeah, totally. It's just a, such a beautiful, the, the comedy is actually what really puts it above everything else for me. It's just, it's so incredibly funny while also still being thrilling and exciting and, having the fights somehow help sell the jokes, which is usually it's kind of like, well, you have one and then you stop and you do the other. But uh, cause I remember it's like the shot that has never left my brain from that movie is in the middle of an intense fight, a close up of uh, the one characters she's wearing flip flops and the close up of the toes curling in to like hold the flip flop before the kick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like this like quick little yeah. like gag kind of shot in the middle of a fight and it's just so funny so yeah. yeah it's just the little details like that he's so great yeah i mean it just it feels like one of those sort of um uh you know i remember the first time i i saw actually i don't remember what it was but i just remember my first reaction to seeing like a real jack you know when jackie chan sort of found his voice you know probably playing oh, yeah. a story or something for me and and then sort of reading about him and finding out that yeah he had made a you know, he looked, he was like, I can't be Bruce Lee. No, I'm going to be Bruce Lee. What can I bring to it? Ah, I will bring comedy to it. And I feel like Stephen Chow yeah. kind of was like the next step, you know? Okay, I, I can't I can't do Bruce Lee and I can't do Jackie Chan. Ah, I can bring in this kind of surrealistic, almost kind of cartoon logic into it. And then he takes it to that next step and, you know, you get such incredible films. So, yeah, I love that because it, it seems like a natural for people who are doing animation to be looking at his stuff. Which is hilarious too, because animation feeds what he does so much too. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. No, that's a, that's a, it's like live action Looney Tunes. Yeah, there. yeah, very much so. Which yeah, there's something about seeing it done well in real life, you know, as opposed to just like sort of dopey attempts to. So when you see somebody who really gets that stuff, trying to do it, you know, uh, in in real life, so to speak, it's um, it's invigorating. But uh, yeah, cool, Brendan. What's what's uh, what's yours? The final one. So my last one. Yeah, this is actually, it influenced Gremlins a little bit, but this is the one where I did a little more personal of influenced me why I dove into animation as much as I have in my entire life. Uh, the Iron Giant. Oh, yeah. Um, so for me, I saw it. Yeah. One of my all time favorite movies. And um, I saw it in an empty theater. Of course. Uh, it was. Everybody uh, saw yeah, it in an empty the, theater. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was released in the perfect uh, dead of summer there. Uh, um, yeah, it's like a Tuesday afternoon, like the week before I went back to college for I think like my junior or senior year. And yeah, it's one other friend who had seen it probably also in an empty theater was like, hey, you got to really see this. I did. And it floored me because at that point I had been uh, going in a screenwriting program where everything I had been writing was basically always like, yeah, this is kind of weird. This is a little too weird. You should probably, is every, everybody's trying to just shift it away from what I wanted to do. Um, and it's also that summer I had interned at Marvel Comics, which uh, was delightful. And it was me, because the other thing I was like, well, what I really want to do is comics. And tonally, you can kind of go a little more over there. Uh, but interning at Marvel uh, sadly made me realize that it's very hard to support oneself solely making comics. So... It's actually see. I, I think that's why they got like, into movies, is my understanding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I think literally the company was bankrupt the summer I was interning. So um, they started at one point during the summer. They started charging you for the fountain soda that was like in the break room, like that kind of level of uh, <laughs> wow. But um, yeah, so it's a little bit of well, I know the types of stories I want to tell, but where am I going to tell them? And it's seeing the Iron Giant, uh, which you know, granted, was not breaking box office. Uh, barriers there again sort of alone but like just seeing is like oh my god animation this is yeah this is the place where the tonal shifts as you were saying that are now finally being more embraced in by the mainstream has always kind of been a little bit more possible in animation like even because that movie it's like you have the very sweet boy and his dog type element between um kid and the robot but also it's like you have a really trenchant anti-war message kind of going through there too and like really dynamic action sequences and even a pretty funny diarrhea gag like it's all <laughs> in a like 80 minute runtime yeah, yeah. um which yeah it's uh i know you guys always love a good short movie and i'm with you on that so it's one of those things where it's just like how much could be done uh so it's just really inspiring and it is also the movie that still uh every single time i've ever watched it has made me cry yeah so oh my yeah, god I'll, I'm, i mean I, yeah. I i'm superman oh my god I'm exactly god. that's it Jesus. Every single time. Every time. I'd, I'd like to yeah. note that the the diarrhea gag has not found its way into the Grumman's TV show yet. So. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> uh, there is at least it, we have a fart gag in season two. So should we get season three? I can promise you diarrhea. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but that that movie, God, it just it broke my heart. It's still it's like it, they just. I mean, everybody understood, and we understood it happening. You know, if you're anywhere near the business, it was like you're watching it yeah. happen in real time. They don't know how to market this. It was just like if yeah. Disney had made this film, if they made a film half this good, Disney could have turned it into a mega hit. And just Warner Brothers yeah. was just like, oh, we barely know how to make it. <laughs> oh, it's so frustrating because you'd be going I around. I'd be going around as a grown man going, no, you guys have to see this movie while it's still in the theater. It's like the best thing I've seen. It's, it's To this day, I put it in my top 10. And people are going, what? Yeah. It's that cartoon that no one's going to? Well, yes, that cartoon no one's going to. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I can't imagine yeah. what it feels it's like just, to yeah. have worked on that. I mean, it's like if, if you know, if, we're, if I'm this annoyed now, imagine – I guess Brad Bird's doing all right, but still, still. Uh, yeah. And people have discovered it. It's found, it's it's certainly. Fit. I was going to say, I, cause I met uh, somebody like a few years ago. I did meet somebody who had been uh, a board artist on it. And that was his, what the solace that he has is that it has found an audience. Oh, yeah. It is nice to see yeah. that like, you know, 20 years later, people actually still talk about it. People do remember it. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's getting there. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's perceived now as a classic I and mean, everything, rightly so. And, you yeah. know, it takes. But um, yeah, it was just so weird to watch that happen. So so frustrating. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even remember. Like, Joe, did you like that film? Shut up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. It'd be did. great though, this the time where Joe did. came out, and that is, yeah. that's Joe's version of Goonies. He's just like, no, fuck. fuck, yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah. I know one person. He's a, he's a screenwriter, and and his, uh, I remember it came up once, and there were a bunch of, you know, this was a few years after, so it was, and there were a bunch of people at a party who were all like, you know, doing what we're doing now, and he's like, fuck, it's, like, it's just an E.T. knockoff. And we all just looked at him, and it was, you know, there's a million movies where you can be, yeah, not for me, or I really hate it. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, okay, we can still get married. It's all right. But it was like, oh, ooh, I don't, I don't want to hang around with you. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> like Joe in uh, Shock Corridor, I guess. Is that the, uh, has he made you guys do that? Have you guys, uh, have you showed them Shock Corridor yet, Joe? Or I don't make people watch Shot Corridor. Yeah, Shot Corridor. That was when I was in college. The Samuel Fuller movie? The, yeah. 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 Okay. Have you seen it? I know of it, but I haven't seen it. It's like a it's like a it's like a knockoff of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't reach to the screening screen <laughs> uh, yeah, Brendan Joe's Joe's yeah. talking about showing it to people in college. If they didn't like it, he would not be their friend. So which uh, I respect. I respect. I respect that. Uh, yeah. yeah. No. Well. Well. Guys, man. Thank you. This has been a blast, and it's it's so much fun. I'm so I'm psyched for you. I'm psyched for Joe. The show is is on Max today. Um. And yes. and uh, yeah. Check it out. Okay. Here's a stupid question. I should always find this stuff out first. Is it um like I don't even turn on my box anymore. I just watch everything on like Apple TV. So is it coming out weekly? Is it all dropping at once? Uh, it is going to be a weekly release. Okay. Uh, it's weekly, and it's also on. It's also on Cartoon Network. At some point, yeah. Oh, but not not. A- uh, the current, yeah, the current release is uh, two episodes a week. Okay. Uh, first two episodes today, May twenty third. Uh, we're it, subsequent weeks. It'll be on Thursdays. So I'm not great at dates at the top of my head here, but I think it's whatever. The not this Thursday, next week's Thursday. I think June first. And then every Thursday thereafter, two episodes for our 10-episode season. Uh, and yeah, at some point, the some point later, I believe, Cartoon Network, um, but I think it's the whole initial run will be on Max, and then uh, it'll also air on Cartoon Network. So confusing. I see. I don't know. I'm just going to yeah. type in the name of the show. And <laughs> it's on purpose. And then <laughs> our Disco Disc release yeah. is in August, <laughs> and then uh, Laser Disc <laughs> in October. Yeah. And Betamax, folks. Then it's the big one. I'm then it's coming out in Betamax, exactly. Yeah. Betamax. I'm, yeah. I'm holding out for the box. For, once Betamax. we approve the giant yeah. box art. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, thank you guys. And thank, I didn't realize there was a second season already. I'm very psyched about that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, We're, yeah. Very yeah. So, like, folks, get out there. You're going to, you know, I don't need to tell you to support the show because it's, it's terrific, but support the show because we want a third season as well. And, uh, um, yeah. And, and, and look, it's, um, uh, you know, if it does really well, Joe can stop doing this podcast. <laughs> yes, which I which I do to support myself, as you can see. Yeah. And the more you watch, uh, the less likely Joe will constantly be asked, but what about Gremlins 3? Ah. The, the bigger our show gets, the less Joe will be bugged by that question. Well, no, that's actually not true. Really the, bigger, really the, the bigger the show gets, the more they're going to ask about <laughs> Gremlins. Yeah, the more they're going to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would think. Well, in that case, then you can annoy Joe by watching our show, so he'll get that question. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, all right, man. Well, thank thank you guys. And um, yeah, can't wait to see the rest of the show. Great to see you guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having us on. It's a blast to be on here.
The Movies That Made Me is the official podcast of Trailers From Hell, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. We are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for The Movies That Made Me. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.